The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome on. Let's talk Western Conference here. No reason to prevaricate any further. We're going to go in mostly reverse order of the standings, but we have a couple of games that we're going to talk about, so we'll fold those uh, two teams in together. And the Houston Rockets and the Sacramento Kings played a basketball game today that was scheduled in an NBA arena. What are the Houston Rockets' fundamentals, Danny? Yeah, it's it's been a more challenging stretch for Houston today, notwithstanding. Uh, they're 13-32 and 32 overall, 3-12 and 12 in their last 15. Remember that hot stretch they had? It's been a little bit. They're 28th in net rating, negative 8.7 per 100 possessions, 26th in offense, and they've fallen all the way to last in defense, 30th. And they're projected to finish with the worst record in the West, 22 wins per 538's Raptor model, and they're not making the playoffs. Yeah, um, what I do, I, I watch this game on Synergy, and so usually when I do that, I will take voice notes on it so I can just keep watching the game and not have to pause it and write stuff down. And the software that I use just automatically names the document, probably based on the words that it senses in there. I use an auto transcription. The name of this document that was automatically named was turnovers. Yes! But despite that, this was, I thought, an encouraging game for the Rockets. Certainly less so for the fighting Sacramento Kings, who did get Rashawn Holmes back in this game. Houston took it 118-112. And a lot of Rockets had some really encouraging moments on the offensive end. They also had an astronomical 22 turnovers. That was made up for, though, by 16 of 40 three-point shooting and 69% two-point shooting. The Kings give up the most points in the paint in the NBA, and the Rockets have some guys who will attack the basket pretty hard but my first takeaway is i just really liked what i've seen from Jalen green in this game and quietly since he's missed about a month with that hamstring since he's come back he's basically been the guy that i was expecting him to be this year as the number two overall pick that i was so high on around draft time and particularly after summer league yeah it's been did, extremely encouraging he had a, but, a yeah, rebound but, sorry, did, late. did you you watch some of this game right i did yeah. i watched um yeah. so i i I, as some people know, I'm a 49ers fan, so I focused on that during it, but I was watching it during the breaks and then watched the ending of this game, um, including a really I- impressive Jalen Green skying for a rebound. It wasn't quite a dagger offensive rebound, but it was pretty yeah. close because the Rockets ended up finishing it out in that possession. But the first thing I want to ask you, and this will tie in with the Kings, of course, is that I would say this game swung in those final minutes, I think it was around the seven minute mark, on the referee's decision to give a flagrant two on a De'Aaron Fox foul. This was an interesting one. I know um, 
various people have brought up that Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, the first person I remember saying this, that a lot of plays look a lot worse intent-wise in slow motion. I actually think this one looked a lot worse live. Like yeah. when, when Matthews went down, I just, I, I was very worried for him. And it was, I think a flagrant one would have been appropriate, but I thought that a common foul was more appropriate than a flagrant two. Like that's that's where this goes on the, on the gradient for me. Partially because he was making a legitimate basketball play, just did it a little bit overzealously. And the consequences to Matthews, I mean, he fell awkwardly. It was, thankfully, it wasn't any leg problem. I originally was worried in the slow motion once that it was going to be a leg thing, but I think he just fell pretty hard on his back and his butt. But giving that a flagrant two with Tyrese Halliburton unavailable because he's in the protocols, that made the sledding significantly easier for the Houston Rockets in the remainder of the game. That's true, it did. And it threw Fox out. I, I didn't feel particularly strongly about it either way. Fox really wound up, and I think that's where and Matthews in a vulnerable position and he went down in a way really landed hard on his tailbone no altercation resulted but it definitely now as it turned out Fox actually got more of the ball than maybe would have been expected but just that wind up and just the massive swing when he was in a vulnerable position it was a lot of times we complain that it's the result rather than the intent that gets the judgment and here he did hit the ball but he did just knock him down really hard and it was just such a wild play that i didn't necessarily have a problem with it and even if uh you know maybe on the replay it didn't look as bad as it did live um yeah and fox his game 26 minutes six of 12 one of two from three four assists three turnovers was okay you know not game changing in a game where they really needed a ton from him with Hal Burton out and they, they went with Davion Mitchell who had a really nice game on the second unit as the point guard but yeah Fox just doesn't you just don't see those plays from him this year for whatever reason in addition to shooting 25% from three where he's just pushing it down your throat and you're just like wow this guy is one of the most athletic point guards in the NBA he's had a couple of dunks this year that were big or whatever but it just you don't feel De'Aaron Fox on a possession to possession basis this year I would say um I, I want to yeah, get back I, to uh, by the way I'll, yeah sorry uh, if, sorry if, to if jump in I wholeheartedly first. agree with that and yeah. it's been I mean there were times even going back to when we saw him at the hoop summit that I thought he could be that defensively more than he's been but offensively it's it's just not it's not quite there for me and I, I was watching this game partially thinking about his fit potentially in this with the Sixers with a Ben Simmons trade and I'm just like I, I think it'd be better there where you don't have to rely on him to be your your cadence but it would still be a challenge. Yeah, I went on the Ringer NBA show today with Waz, and I still thought that De'Aaron Fox is the most talented person that's been discussed as a possible return in a Simmons trade, and that maybe the Sixers should still consider that, even if, uh, as with you, I'm unimpressed with Fox's season so far this year. I want to get back to Green, though, because it's he didn't do it from the three-point line. He had a few of his good games early where just he got hot from three, and that was kind of it. And he did have four turnovers. He'll, he'll still drive into traffic, and one once he gets inside of the dotted line he's probably going to shoot it just about every time and he was definitely there were times for example when he would run pick and roll with Christian Wood and Christian Wood actually really pick and pop with Christian Wood and they would have either Alex Len or Rashawn Holmes or Damian Jones just hanging out in the lane not guarding Christian Wood just waiting for Jalen Green and Jalen Green would still attack the basket and a couple of these times he was able to finish but that's how some of his turnovers arose instead of just recognizing okay the big is back Christian wood is a good spot up shooter i need to just throw it back to christian wood and he can make a three and but wood did have was three of seven from three and all of the good threes that he took he made and all the bad ones
ones that he took he missed but all three of those were out of pick and pop that looked pretty good so but the bigger thing about green is he just blows by people man he really he's just so fast that if if you're out in space against him and he can hit the jumper enough that you have to guard him basically anyone who's in an isolation with him and there's no help is if he tries to attack as hard as he can in one direction you just can't stay with him he's just so fast and starting to get a little more finishing craft he still struggles defensively but it's not as bad in this game as it had been earlier he looks a little bit stronger he's not just getting completely knocked out of the way all the time he he definitely struggled to defend but he healed at times but he had a really nice game in this one was 27 points and, and green just lost him a couple of times other times when he locked down he did better but i just i think he's managed to be efficient he was six out of seven i'm sorry five out of seven on twos in this game and had a couple of pretty nice passes to the role man i mean he's not making advanced reads by any stretch of the imagination but he's made, making some decent looks so obviously with he and kpj who had 23 points on five and nine from three in this game those two guys are just so inconsistent and their vision always waxes and wanes they're so turnover prone that you're just you're going to go through these stretches like at the end of the third quarter which wasn't necessarily all on those guys where and shingun is like this too where they're just going to throw the ball away a bunch of times in a row and it's going to look terrible they had 10 turnovers in the third quarter but you see enough in terms of flash with those guys and particularly with green where i feel like they're on the path what else we need to talk about on this one well one of the things we should talk about is sacramento's fundamentals because we didn't get to that before and since this is when we're talking about them the kings are 18 and 28 on the season 5 and 10 in their last 15 negative 4.7 net rating is 24th they're 24th in offense and 27th still bad not as horrible as last year in defense um 113.9 if you want the full number on it 538 projects them to finish 13th in the west and their playoff odds weren't great before but they're not great now they're all the way they're all the way down at one percent on raptor and two percent on elo i will note that as i understand it correct me if i'm wrong these playoff odds that's to make it to the best of seven not to make it into the 10th yes yeah, yeah absolutely um i'd like to see odds more based on just uh, making it into the to the play in as well basketball reference also has their own odds where they break it, it down by the percent chance of getting each seed that they, they think so a little more rockets here and then we can shift to both the kings and the end of the game I, I have a lot of observations on this game even though it was wasn't the greatest basketball I, I think in the rockets just they don't play a guy who's a pure point guard dj augustin has been out of the rotation a, a lot of the season they start the second quarter with armani brooks Eric Gordon, Garrison Matthews, KJ Martin, and Alperin Sengun. And I guess Gordon is the point guard in that alignment, but they just generally, like Matthews had it going from the outside. Brooks did in this game, but they just don't make very good decisions. They don't have good feel for the game. They're not good passers overall, or if they are good passers, they're so young that they make a ton of mistakes like Sengun. Even Eric Gordon is not really a great passer, but the, all these guys were pretty relentless attacking the rim, particularly Gordon in this one, who had another just really nice game with. 15 points plus 25 in 32 minutes yeah and he had the definitive basket where he basically just drove all the way in and got to the finish and that put him up i think that put him up six so yeah holmes only played 15 minutes in this game he did not have it i think overall he hasn't been as good defensively as sean holmes for the kings and really he just didn't contest anything at the basket part of that though was because christian wood really spaces the floor and the rocket season turned around 
to respectability as soon as he started playing at center and yeah he's still too thin what Carl Anthony Towns did to him in a game about a week and a half ago should be outlawed in 47 to 48 states but he spaces the floor on the offensive end and Holmes just wasn't really capable of both guarding him and finding the right times to step in pick and pop is always a, a good way to get a good shot late in the clock for a young team like this and that's why the the Rockets are able to attack the rim so well again also against the Kings team that just doesn't really have any rim protection so um anything else you wanted to hit on on this well, one I've got plenty more but the only thing I wanted to mention just as we're going through it the Kings are actually 11th in the West right now in terms of record they're 18 18 and 28 is good enough for 11th there we'll talk about the chasm that exists right now in the conference between the haves the have-nots and the have even lesses but they're uh that's an interesting place I I thought that Garrison Matthews, we brought up the hard foul that got De'Aaron Fox out, but I thought that his shooting provided provided a real lift for the Rockets. That's another, you brought up Christian Wood as one of the other swing factors, also playing Garrison Matthews more. And not only was it the four of six from three, but also he got fouled shooting a three, so that was three of his five free throws if memory serves. Yeah, and he was one for his last 14 coming in tonight, and it definitely made a difference. I mean, he is jacking up, and the Rockets... The Rockets take some bad threes. Now, Matthews can hit those at times. They have guys who can hit them sometimes. But between Wood, KPJ, some of these off-the-dribble threes, though, KPJ hit a massive off-the-dribble three that put him up two possessions uh, under two minutes to go. Uh, Brooks takes some really bad ones as well. They're, they A lot of these threes they're taking are not open, or they just, when they try and pass it around, they pass it to the wrong guy who's already covered, or a guy will be open, and then rather than just taking the shot he'll dribble inside the arc and then he'll step back for the three after that so they just they don't do a great job of moving the ball they don't have a great feel for the game they don't have great passers on this team you know kpj was able to find a couple of nice plays to guys slipping to the rim but overall he's not really a, a great passer they don't make good decisions we, we know all this about a young team um uh, so something else i wanted yeah. to discuss is that it was unfortunate that marvin bagley was unable to play he had a big 26 and 13 in their win on Friday over the Rockets. And then he missed Sunday's game due to right shoulder soreness. And then Tristan Thompson has missed four straight due to illness. They haven't clarified what illness. Weirdly, it doesn't say non-COVID illness, but I assume that it is because that it's not said that Tristan Thompson is in the protocols. So they've been, the Kings have been pretty shorthanded in the front court, which is how Bagley got to play in the first place and had some nice games. But now yeah, with- but, but also, Holmes, I mean, Tristan Thompson, I don't, would he even be in the rotation? Are they trying to move him? This, this kind of smacks of that right like Damian Jones has actually been pretty decent for them yeah and, and they have sure and now close. that Holmes is back and Len and and Metu is obviously playing plenty of minutes so they have they have a lot of options yeah and for the Kings focusing more on, on them again this shot selection from a lot of these guys is just not good Shemezi Metu who has had some moments and impressed me in some ways with the, his ability to attack the basket offensively his floater game although that doesn't wasn't really working that well he's made himself into a three-point he deserves credit for his skill development but he was taking some difficult ones in this one terrence davis was getting up plenty of shots as well mo harkless at one point just pulled an off the dribble three where you're just kind of wondering what they're doing but there were some bright spots for the kings in this game and i thought this was the best offensive game i've seen from davion mitchell where he hit two out of four both of those were three pointers where the defense went under and physically that same elite quickness and athleticism that makes him such a pest defensively and i thought he really changed the game as the kings got back into it in the third quarter forcing a bunch of turnovers but he was seven to twelve had seven assists Closed the game out at point guard, 28 minutes. 
And he's really able to get a lot of separation with those great physical tools that he has. It's just the problem is that his shots haven't gone in and his finishing is not amazing. He kind of has the one finishing move, which is just the the Nash layup quickly once he he's kind of Dennis Schroeder like in his finishing. I think Schroeder is actually an interesting analog for him as an offensive player, uh, both in terms of the physical tools. Davion obviously plays a lot harder and I think is more athletic and stronger, but there's a kind of very dependent on speed will take some mid-rangers doesn't always hit him will take some threes doesn't always hit him so i think that's interesting but uh, davion played really well in this game helped the kings get back into it and, and mitchell's going to have a larger opportunity over the next little while with with halbert and the protocols we don't know how long he's going to be unavailable but the kings are really down to i would call it two primary creators but it is good news for them that they were able to get 26 assists on 41 made baskets in this game i thought that and they you know split it up terrence davis as you mentioned had five assists so it wasn't just the Fox and Mitchell show, but they're going to need to keep it moving. And another part, you brought up the turnovers. Of those 22 Houston turnovers, 16 of them were live ball steals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they definitely, you know, 25 fast break points to the Kings. Pretty impressive they're able to win, though, despite that. But the Kings' yeah. half-court defense was absolutely atrocious. Both teams were making all sorts of mistakes. Oh, by the way, ends. I have that stat. Houston, 110 offensive rating in the half-court. Oh, yeah. That's a an, an insanely high. So, a couple other notes strategically in this one. The Kings were just absolutely destroying the Rockets with Spain pick and roll in this game with Heald setting the screen. Mitchell got some of his layups off of that and Fox got some layups off of that. And remember the Spain pick and roll is you've got a pick and roll set. Then a shooter either sets a back screen on the screeners, man, the, the big man so that he can't help out or the, the shooter will fake that screen and then pop out to the top of the floor. And the Kings were running a nice variation of it where they, they would start Buddy Heald in the corner and then as the pick and roll started he would sprint into the lane and that would leave that entire side of the floor open so they couldn't really bring any help over and then Heald would pop out but I mean the Rockets failed to communicate and defend this probably 10 times in a row I would say either giving up wide open threes or just giving up layups to the guy when the big got got screened underneath and that's like the first option of the play that's supposed to set up the shooter option so finally with 115 to go they defend it reasonably well christian wood actually calls it out and they force him into a pick and pop which meant to actually got wide open on it but he missed it so steven silas after the game actually praised christian wood's communication in the pick and roll i was like well he, he did get it right on the 11th time <laughs> uh and then the other thing is you mentioned that incredible offensive rebound that jalen green got with about 25 seconds left barnes or i'm sorry eric gordon was matched up one-on-one -on -one against metu on the reset blew by him for the layup of course there's no help that the kings actually closed it with metu at center which was a difficult to defend look but also didn't give them a ton of rim protection metu was a center by trade and he's really become a good enough offensive player to play the four and then then after that bucket they're up four the kings try the fake dho with 12.4 left down four after the timeout and barnes it doesn't work goes in has to shoot a, a really difficult floater again the part of the reason the whole quick two thing doesn't work is because the quick two is not automatic and then he got stuck inside the lane and they're running out of time and he just had to take it so not running a play for a three down four with 12.4 left is let's move on to the oklahoma city thunder they have the second worst record in the western conference at 14 and 28 
They are five and nine in their last 14. Seven native 7.9 net rating is 27th in the NBA. They're 29th, pretty putrid 29th in offense and respectable 19th on defense. 538 projects them to win the Raptor model 23 games, which is 14th in the West and importantly would give them the number four lottery odds because the Magic and Pistons additionally are projected to have a worse record actually than both the Rockets and the Thunder and they're not going to make the playoffs. You wanted to talk about Darius Baisley for notes. This is his age 21 season and his third season in the NBA playing about 20, 26 minutes a game on the Thunder. Yeah, what are Baisley's top line stats here for the year why don't we start with that and how that compares with previous years last year he played 31 minutes a game so it's a little bit smaller sample there but 9.3 points is meaningfully down 6.3 rebounds also meaningfully down actually the highest per season of his career 11.8 but that's mostly by i think just a lower offensive environment because his true shooting and usage is actually down his rebounding is actually basically the same so might relate to that but remarkably consistent true shooting shooting 49.7 his rookie year 49.1 last year 49.2 this year and unfortunately for basically that includes being below 30 percent from three again yeah and that of course is a concern and his form is not amazing i hope that he would be further along in terms of the three-point shot and he had such a nice run that way in the bubble um he also really struggles to finish around the rim he's under 60 percent around the rim and for this player type that just needs to be better he is that athletic he is long he does have a high skill level and part of what's so intriguing about him is his ball handling where he's able to get separation and drive to the basket he averages five drives a game which again for a four man that's pretty good but a lot of these are kind of contested finishes he he can finish with either the left or the right hand but a lot of times he'll try to slow down euro step power through guys and he's just not quite strong enough to do that he'll get knocked off balance have to throw up some crap that's gonna miss and it's particularly worrisome because his dunks are actually up his dunks are now 15% of his field goal attempts. He was in the single digits in previous years. Yeah, so, so that means his non-dunk finishing is real rough. Right, exactly. And so now the dunks are up probably because he's being set up more. They got more passing with uh, Giddy than they did in previous years. But he's still intrigues to me because of the physical tools and he, he's just got some moves off the dribble he's able to blow by guys he's able to make some guys look bad with some a, a quick crossover between the legs to get separation get in the lane is he making great decisions once he gets there probably not is he finishing amazing when he gets there probably not his touch is not great in from floater range either and, and then you know as you mentioned he's a solid enough defensive rebounder for the four over 20 percent defensive rebounds and i think he's not horrible defensively i'm not going to say he's good at this point here in his third year but really where he's hurting them is on the offensive end and the impact metrics really do not like what he's done and it doesn't help that he has impact darling Kendrick Williams backing him up yeah I believe so on EPM he is in the 16th percentile this year yeah negative 4.4 overall EPM negative 2.9 on offense and if they were actually trying to win games it's ridiculous that he is starting over Kendrick Williams Uh, he has had a nice stretch in his last three games probably his best three game stretch of the season finishing more around the rim uh they've even had him run some pick and roll that hasn't gone well he's 10 out of 31 out of pick and roll and they are eight points per 100 possessions worse when he's on the floor and that's no good because he plays with the starters who ostensibly are supposed to be the their best guys so still clearly you can't rely on him to me he hasn't shown enough to be yes this is our power forward of the future if they get a chance to draft over the top of him even if it's someone in the in the late lottery with one of their picks or or in 
the 20s I, I think you definitely do that clearly of course you know if it's Jari Smith then they're not gonna think twice about it but I do think he he still has some province I'm not giving up on him yet the rest of the year will be important for him as well he is athletic he has some ball skills but something is gonna have to really improve for him he's either gonna have to get awesome defensively or he's gonna need to shoot it better and at a minimum he's got to become like a very good finisher with the the way he wants to play getting the rim and I think that could be within his grasp so but obviously he's a, a massively negative player for them right now and there's a reason when Mike Muscala or Kendrick Williams comes in that they look so much better I think there's a loose parallel to something I talked about last 15 and 60 with Killian Hayes which is the inflection point is not really about Baisley is uh, you know the bit Baisley is he a contributing player right now it's when do you stop giving him the opportunities on the court and it's different for Oklahoma City in some ways because A, they have some other options at the position, and B, they have so many other draft picks that the calculus can be a little bit different. But I agree with you that Baisley warrants a shot, even though I think it's far from a guarantee that he'll get there. And, you know, some of the tools are there. And, I mean, he played plenty his rookie year and did make threes at a respectable rate. He was 35% that year, 49 of 141. So that's roughly the same number of attempts as this year. But now we're we're a career 30% three-point shooter on about 500 threes, 556. So, yeah that is a that is a very real concern um um one more thing on him sure i mentioned he was 10 out of 31 out of pick and roll well he'd love to be that out of isolations because he's one out of 17 isolations he has seven points on 27 possessions that is first percentile i think that's only the case because synergy doesn't do zero with percentiles and now you could say hey you know if you take away some of this self-created stuff he's just trying to explore the studio space whatever then he's more efficient but then his usage gets down really low. We already mentioned his usage is 22 last year. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, uh, an OKC power forward having a low usage rate? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, where are we going next here, Danny? At the moment, the Pelicans and Spurs are actually tied record-wise, so we'll go with the team with the weaker cleaning the glass net rating. That means the Pelicans get the honors. They are yeah, six. I, I'll take that then sure. since you, you did most of the work uh, on them. 16 and 27. Since their miserable start, they're actually over 500. Six and six since we last... Uh, checked in on them negative 5.6 net rating that's still 26th in the nba a lot of that comes from that early period and then also from time when brandon ingram didn't play but we're not talking about a good team here they're 25th on offense 24th on defense they still project for 34 wins though i'm not sure how much of that is being priced in a potential return of zion but that would be tied for 11th in the conference 14 percent chance of the playoffs per raptor elo likes them a little bit better at 21 percent but part of the reason they've been so respectable is this current starting lineup has actually been more than solid. Yeah, I was already thinking about going this direction, the 1560, but uh, Mason Ginsburg had a tweet that inspired me where the current starting lineup, Devontae Graham, Josh Hart, Herb Jones, Brendan Ingram, and Valanchunas, they're, and I'll update these stats with what it is now, what it is now, they played the sixth most possessions, you know, so that's cleaning the glasses, garbage time filter of any lineup in the league, and they, their cleaning the glass net rating is a plus 10.2, which is amazing in and of itself, but that's also tied for the second best net rating of any of the really high minute lineups number one is utah's starting five and then that pelicans lineup going into tonight's game was tied with a denver configuration of morris barton gordon jeff green and Jokic. um 
So I wanted to do a little bit of digging on, well, what what makes that group so successful? And something I found notable is that they're kind of good on both ends. They're not dominant on either. Um, one About a 114 offensive rating, about a 103 defensive rating. Like, that's really good overall. Like, you know, you that kind of is what? That's why you have a 10 point, a 10.2 net rating there. Um, and so it's like, okay, well, what are they doing best? And to me, the two definitive elements of those of that lineup is they're excellent on the defensive glass. And that's not a surprise because Valachudis can do well there, but also Herb Jones and Josh Hart deserve a lot of credit. Those guys can be very aggressive helping out on the glass. And Ingram's doing better, I would say, overall there. And that group also gets to the free throw line a lot. And I wanted to look into that a little bit more. And both Brandon Ingram and Valanchunas, we've talked about this being overall a lower free throw environment, though I believe that has toned down from where it was early in the season. Both Ingram and Valanchunas have higher free throw attempts per 100 possessions than they did last year. And Josh Hart is at the highest free throw attempt rate of his career as well. Yeah, Josh Hart has this weird contract structure, which we'll talk about in a second. And he's always kind of been more promise than production when it's come to being that 3 and D wing, that new Danny Green sort of guy. And But the interesting thing that I was always, probably the thing I was most impressed by with him in his first couple of years was he actually is a rugged guy getting to the basket and finishing, particularly his second summer league, when I think he won summer league MVP he did uh and he just was able to get to the basket and finish and he's so strong he would bounce off guys he's not a nuclear dunk on you athlete but he would just throw his body in there and he was able to finish it and he was just very aggressive attacking the rim in basically all situations and that's now really starting to come to fruition at the nba level it really is and hard is having you know we're not all the way done with it but he's having the best year of his career 15.7 per 61 percent true shooting still low 17 percent usage but they're all career highs and what's really encouraging this ties in with what you're saying is it's not propelled by outlier shooting hearts 34 percent from three this year is actually lower than his career average and his frequency has gone down too so you're like okay how's he being more efficient and it's by getting to the line more as i mentioned before and Hart is making 60 percent of his twos And for most of Josh Hart's career, he's taken 25 to 30% of his shots at the basket. And he's always been a good finisher, as you mentioned. This year, that 25 to 30% is 44% of Josh Hart's shots. And he's making 70% around the basket. So a lot of that, you know, it's it's sustainable. And yeah, their spacing could get a little bit different when Zion comes back. But he's, you know, he's pushing hard. He's also doing a good job sometimes on cuts. The part that is unsustainable to me is that, as Queen the Glass defines it, they draw the lines differently, the basketball reference. Hart is shooting 47% on long twos. I would expect that to regress to the mean a little bit. But he's been a positive offensive player this year, plus... 0.8 0.8 EPM is actually 20th among small forwards. And that brings in into question, you know, so I'm not saying he's the 20th best small forward or anything like that, but he's had a nice year. This really unusual contract structure. Yeah, he's got 13 million guaranteed this year, then two non-guaranteed years, but the second non-guaranteed year is a player option. The only way you can have a non-guaranteed option is if you also have the previous year non-guaranteed. So this was one where it gave the Pell it protected the Pells on the front end where it's only 13 million guaranteed but then it also protects Hart on the back end where if he exceeded that production which I think he has I think if the Pells had to decide today they would guarantee his next season that it protects Hart too where if he outplays this and he's going to be age 27 or 28 next summer I'm not sure exactly which but this is his age 26 season. Opt out. I'm sorry so, this is his this age, is age 26, 26 yes. so he, he will be he could be a free agent before his age 28 right perfect so that I thought that was a pretty good contract structure I think 
more teams and restricted free agents should look at that in the future whether it's, a, it's protection for both uh so i mean it seems like if he keeps playing like this he'll get his non-guarantee picked up for next year and will either be traded or could opt out of his player option or it could even be extended uh, potentially as well so it's good to see that some of these guys for the pals playing well their bench is still a struggle i'm very interested to see what happens when zion comes back i guess they'll probably put herb jones on the bench We'll have to see. His defense has been a uh, has been really really good. I guess it'll either be either be Hart or Jones. But yeah, it's it, not yeah, it's not going to be Ingram. It's not going to be JV or Graham. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, but maybe they could close it with Herb Jones and Zion and Ingram in the front court. That might be interesting to have that kind of a guy sure. available here. So now we've got the San Antonio Spurs. The San Antonio Spurs are 16 and 27 five and nine since the last 15 and 60 most of that has occurred because they've just had so many guys in the protocols and it's a shame because they were kind of on a run before that but they're pretty much out of the protocols now other than a couple of guys negative 1.2 net rating is 19th 21st on offense 18th on defense that's a little disappointing i would hope they'd be better than 18 on defense they too project for 34 wins which would be a tie for 11th in the conference and 13% chance of making the playoffs per Raptor, 23% per ELO. A couple little Spurs notes here. Zach Collins has been assigned to the Austin Spurs. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to play a game for them. It could just mean he's down there just to get some more intense practice. Trey Jones has been out for six straight in the protocols. And Danny, you watched their game yesterday against the LA Clippers. I did, and it it was an interesting one for me because I I had seen the score was close in the fourth quarter, and then I deliberately and I'm like, okay, I wanted to watch it. The both teams that I hadn't been, well, I mean, the Spurs we did for the live show recently, but hadn't been in as close contact with them, so it's good to watch those. Sometimes those teams play each other, and I knew I didn't see the box score, I didn't see anything else. I'm just like, okay, it's close in the fourth quarter. That's all I know about this game. And then I started I started up this morning, and I'm like, wait, why? The- hell is jock landale starting and it it's because jacob pertle uh, was dealing with back tightness and he's he's been playing but maybe he's been dealing with it and the first thing that was striking about this game was that in the very very early going this changed later on when landale was in the game the clippers were driving much more aggressively they were much more confident getting to and finishing around the basket they ended the game 11 of 23 in the restricted area which is distinctly not great but they did a better job in those minutes and then when drew eubanks came in i thought the spurs did a better job defending around the basket and i think that one of the big stories of this game which the spurs won 101-94 was the inconsistency of the clippers offense there were times when guys were hitting shots when they were moving the ball well that even without paul george even without Kawhi leonard you're like okay they can you know they can cobble it together there were a couple of good drives by reggie jackson but then there were other points where it just it was just grinding to a halt and some of that was maybe they had a little bit worse spacing or they weren't getting turnovers so they weren't getting the ball in transition or Eric Bledsoe was on the floor and those were those were all real challenges for them and I thought the Spurs also did a better job locking down defensively this wasn't a crazy DeJounte like steal performance or anything like that but they were more disruptive overall and that you know I brought up the 11 of 23 around the basket the other thing that was stunning to me and it forced it inspired forced inspired me to look at to look at this a little bit is San Antonio takes so many pull-up twos. This was a very much a pull-up two game, um, but, a, but San Antonio, 
And there's a part of that, which I think is kind of good, is that they're Popovich and the coaching staff are empowering these young Spurs to explore the studio space, to do more with the ball in their hands and, you know, not having Devin Vassell and Lonnie Walker just sit in the corner every single time and just take the shots that are presented. No, like Keldon Johnson attacks a little bit, Vassell attacks a little bit. But what that leads to is I think they kind of have too much latitude where the Spurs think a long two is a better shot than it is. And so they're just very, very willing to take them. And it's not like they're unbelievably great. And like one calibrator of that is that the Spurs this year, they're 26th in location effective field goal percentage. And that's a part of why their offense has struggled so much. They don't take many threes. They take a lot of long twos. And then they also are taking a fair amount of floaters, which I think that's more just that it's hard to get all the way to the basket. Their, their athletes aren't necessarily that level. Yeah, it's interesting that they take a lot of twos off the drill. I thought that would be the case then this year, but they're actually second in the NBA in terms of assists per game and percentage yeah. of assisted baskets. They move the ball. The they Warriors. just have certain possessions where they just don't. Right. Yeah, yeah that's, and, that's and really DeJounte Murray. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead. I, I was just going to say, DeJounte Murray overall, he's had a pretty nice stretch lately. He's obviously, he's, he's been getting a lot of assists. And uh, I watched a, a bunch of his uh, assists recently, and I just wasn't that impressed by his passing overall. It's not the type of passing guys open stuff. He's he's running the show. There's some screening action. Maybe he'll throw it to a guy. They're more just kind of basic assists, running the offense style assists. He's not necessarily drawing that much of the defense. Um, certainly his usage is way up now, 26%. He's able to create some shots. He was all that they had during this latest COVID hit stretch like that game we did last week against the Knicks. But he's still, let's not go crazy on him. He's had some good games recently, but he also has a 50.5% true shooting. And so he still is not really close to a number one option. I think the all-star talk for him is way overblown at this point. This is only his age 25 season. Point guards tend to develop a little bit later in terms of their offensive games. So I do think maybe if he could get find a way to be a little bit more efficient, like his long two is a pretty good weapon in the half court at this point in time. And he does finish well around the rim just doesn't get there that much is becoming more comfortable with his three and he's hitting 33 percent if you just bump those jump shot percentages up a little bit get to the room a little bit more then with his defense maybe we are talking about an all-star caliber player one other stat on murray that i think is a little bit telling is that the spurs are only a little bit over half or a little bit over league average in half court offensive rating they're 94.4 is 58th percentile so far this year but in a sort of De'Aaron foxy twist the thing that why the Spurs are better offensively when he's on the floor is because they run a lot and they've been successful when they run a lot. Some of that is the steals that DeJounte Murray generates. And something else I thought was notable about this game from the Spurs perspective was they, in a lot of the earlier stretches, they were staggering Murray and Derek White. Derek White had a big game, 19.7 of 11 from the field. But it was when they played together that I thought things worked really well, both at one point in the second quarter and then in the fourth quarter when the Spurs went on the run to basically seal the game. Because having multiple ball handlers it changed up their attack it made it harder for the Clippers to key in on one single thing and that was a part of the theory in the first place was that they would play those guys together I also really enjoyed that pop went super small at the very end of the game it was Murray White Devin Vassell Keldon Johnson at the four 
and then the center switched around a couple times, but it was actually Kata Bates Diop at the very end, which was interesting. And by comparison, Ty Lue towards the end of the game, again, the lineups were shifting around a little bit, was Reggie Jackson, Terrence Mann, who are barely played with the starters, Coffee, who I thought had a good game, Marcus Morris and Zubots. And I had this weird thing. I put it in my notes of like, is this their best five of available players? And I think it's probably pretty close. I mean, Abaka had some impactful stretches, but it wasn't like he was so much better protecting the rim than Zubats was. And Batum is the big question mark, but this wasn't his best performance. So, I mean, you reward Amir Coffey, who had a nice game, 20 points, 7 to 13 in the field, hit some big threes, reward Coffey. And then Terrence Mann, I thought they really missed him in the starting lineup because the Clippers, he gave them a sense of urgency on offense and defense that I didn't think the Clippers played with enough overall. Yeah, quickly on Coffey, Law Murray had this stat. Since December 21st, 11.5 points, 4.8 rebounds, 2.6 assists, two threes a game, and he's been at 42% from three. Yeah, pretty um, close to a 50-40-90. Yeah, and that would be between him, Boston, it, maybe there's a feeling that those guys can jump in and give them cheaper production to just give them more wings to allow them to play the way that they played so effectively in last year's playoffs and that maybe Marcus Morris isn't needed as much going forward. He's We talked a little bit about some of the reporting like by, by Jake, Jake Fisher about the Clips potentially wanting to throttle it back here a little bit this season. I, I thought it was interesting actually that it was right at the same time, really, both teams went small. I do you remember which one went first? I mean, it seemed that the based on, on just looking at the, the lineup data with about five minutes left, they both go small. And I, I think the Spurs went to Keldon at the four first, but the Clippers went a little bit, I think, might have gone small at center first. I can't remember. Exactly. Yeah, so they went with Morris at center Batum Eric Bledsoe replacing Zubats and then Coffee. and now that I, I would guess it was probably the Clippers that went there first because they were down most of the game and they're trying to get back into it I mean Ty Lue has previously said they don't really have the greatest personnel to go to those lineups that were so good last year with Morris at center and Morris is having a down year and he's still got two years left on his deal as well uh, what other observations do you have for this one a couple of things on some young guys I thought that Kelton Johnson had a big play late where he contested contested the drive then deflected a pass and knocked off a clipper for a turnover which came close to sealing the game Devin Vassell seems more confident to me he uh he tried some stuff with the ball in his hands more assertive on defense the ball was finding him in the corner took a couple of threes and then BJ Boston didn't play a ton in this game but I thought he looked confident on some of his drives and I'd be you know overall Boston played 17 minutes I'd, I'd I'd like to see more of him. It wasn't his most efficient game, two of nine from the field, but the he has kind of an unusual skill set. And so I, I, I appreciate that. And if this Clippers season is partially like tapping on the brakes, then that could be a potential thing. Um, Also to get their stats in there, because I almost forgot. But, well, quickly on Boston sure. before you do that. Yeah, he's still has 22% usage and 46% true shooting. So what either the true shooting is going to have to come up or the usage is going to have to come down. And at least he's not turning it over much. But yeah, he doesn't really pass at all. I agree with, that, with everyone that he's shown some intriguing stuff, but he's to say that he's helping them right now, other than in the Boston game and a few others, probably wouldn't be accurate. And 
again i do think the clips are going to look better now that nick batum is finally back in the lineup after that bone bruise and he obviously is just a really really important player for them even at, at age 33 uh he by the way cannot be traded if they wanted to trade him he he has number one he came back for a cheap price and it, they'd be dicks to trade him anyway and they're they're very worried about those sorts of perceptions i think but number two he has a player option for next year so he could potentially lose bird rights by being traded since he was right. last year yes and so the the clipper stats 21 and 23 on the season a disappointing though understandable five and nine in the last 14 they're down to 20th in net rating they went from a positive to a negative negative 1.3 still bad on offense 27th still good on defense fourth and even despite this downturn the raptor model partially because of all these other teams falling has them winning 38 games which would be eight in the western conference eighth by themselves a 51% chance of making the final eight and 39% per ELO. Um, uh, one other quick note, just to mention it, Josh Primo, he played more in the game than we did for the NBA cast. Um, only six minutes this one, but I like that he, when he pushes the ball in transition, he does so with his head up and that he's not necessarily finding guys yet, but the idea that at least he's building, building the blocks right and, and looking for things as he's going, because sometimes those are the best, the best scoring opportunities or the passes that you can make in transition. So I was encouraged by, encouraged by that so then we go from the spurs to we already did the kings to the portland trailblazers yeah i actually talked blazers quite extensively and their options some of the themes that you and i have hit on it as well but the i talked about it with mike richmond of lockdown blazers friends of the program obviously so that i think that's going to be out maybe on monday but the blazers are 17 and 25 five and seven since the last 15 and 16 they've actually i mean it's as much as you took on that morose tone in mentioning the name of the team they've played well sure recently uh, we'll, we'll talk about the encouraging stuff too yeah they, they've won a couple of games at home and then they were able to beat the whiz without bradley beal but still on the road again they certainly weren't favored in as anthony simons went completely crazy again we'll finish their fundamentals and we'll talk about simons negative 3.6 net rating though that's 24th in the nba they're all the way down to 11th on offense and they remain a putrid 29th on defense still projecting for 36 wins not sure how dame's potential availability fits in there that would be the 10th seed we'll see how things change with dame out for a while here uh 23 chance of playoffs per raptor 15 percent per elo good news though cj is going to be back on monday against the magic in orlando so they could very conceivably go start this road trip off two and oh which for me who's foretelling one and five on this trip uh, that would prove me wrong uh, already yeah and cj's and been out talk, since yeah. de- he's been out since december 4th so this is a month and a half absence but thrilled that he's going to be back yeah. so soon Larry Nance is still out with right knee inflammation. He should be reevaluated soon. And yeah, yeah. I w- and Nance, that's always concerning I mean, how many yeah. games in a row is he missed now? he's missed like five six games in a row. yeah it's something like that, something so. to that effect um so and he's just he had a bunch of knee trouble in his career he always seems to miss time during a season with soreness or muscle injuries or or whatever and uh they of course they can really use and they do at least have cody zeller back and and nurkic back out of the protocols etc but they they need larry nance they do um to be a stabilizer in the front court and because some of their most interesting lineups inv- involve him out there and 
And a big reason why the Blazers have been able to stem the tide over this last little while is Anthony Simons having this hot streak. This came up a little bit when we talk, we're talking about the like, not even second draft guys, but it's like Simons is having this huge run over his last six games, which is the team's last seven. He missed one because of the death of his, I believe it was his grandfather, 28.3 points. 8.2 assists per game. And most importantly, in some ways, the Blazers are 4-2 and two in those games. Simons, what's fueling it? 46% on almost 12 three-pointers attempted per game. And some of the, the overall stats, this isn't going to be a full Anthony Simons breakdown. Some of the stats for him in terms of like the individual creation numbers are actually really, really intriguing. Um, so if you want to go pick and roll where that includes passes, one point. 0.05 points per possession is 83rd percentile as clean the glass defines it his individual score got pick and roll is actually better than that it's the passing oh, it's the synergy synergy Syn- this is synergy yes this is synergy stats um and we've thought of him for a while as being a capable spot up player 1.3 points per possession on spot ups is fantastic still sucks on defense but the idea that simons and i think this stretch has been evidence for those who want to believe it whether it's in portland which is my expectation or somewhere else that given a larger role he can do more as a scorer well the passing i think has been better than i anticipated overall he might get that opportunity and he might get it pretty soon so a couple of other things on simon's 40 percent from three obviously that's really good 46 percent on long twos and 57 percent on floaters he very rarely gets the rim that's only 12 percent of his shots and he doesn't finish well there 55 percent although he, he is athletic maybe he can get better at that but it, so much of what he's doing is just shooting jump yeah. shots off the dribble which hey that is very and, difficult and, and simon's from. also almost never gets the free throw line he's at two per 36 minutes right now this year yeah. and and so but the whiz you know they had to change up their pick and roll defense against him and that opened up a lot on the interior where they want to lay their big centers back with gafford and thomas bryant who's back now for the whiz and simon's i didn't catch all that game but he, he caused problems for them shooting the ball he forced them out of their drop coverage he was just hitting shot after shot there and he was on fire so this is something that came up with mike richmond i wanted to get your opinion because these i think are very similar players although they've taken very different paths to get here who will be more coveted on the restricted free agent market next summer anthony simons or colin sex isn't that an interesting one because those guys are going to kind of be competing with each other to maybe get a potential suitor get a big offer sheet well either so of their what i think is actually the more interesting stuff. question is if you assumed sexton's healthy because to me if you if you right. throw the health in there it's 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 simons i mean i think that because there uh, will i be, mean i think so, this is this is not a death sentence i mean oh I for sure simon but there will be teams that are spooked a little bit by it and everything else um yeah. but i at some point i will do a like shea gilgis alexander-esque like going through like all of his pick and roll possessions and seeing it but preliminarily i like simons more as a passer than sexton they're both bad on defense i think sexton has taken more than sexton really i think so like as a no, passer no, sorry I, that was that was uh utter sarcasm yeah. that anyone could like could like someone better as a passer yeah. than colin Sexton. and the simons you know like the shot you brought up the wizards game i watched i had that on in passing too like i i think that i, I can see it a little bit more clearly with him the other part that i like better with simons is that i trust his jump shot more and so the idea that he can fit in i think more seamlessly as the second best offensive player than sexton can both in mentality because he's already done it before and in 
in skill set. I think that he could, that he could fit in better there. Simons is also super young. I mean, remember he was drafted drafted really young. He's 22 now. He'll turn 23 shortly before he becomes a restricted free agent. So I I mean Sexton's young too, but I think that'll be a that'll be an argument in favor of Simons. So yeah, I I and and so there's also the element of like the curiosity of like oh well he's done this in a limited thing and maybe the rest of this year for the Blazers if Lillard is out and maybe they trade CJ it gets that answer of the like oh well we haven't seen what he could be is in many ways better more intriguing to teams than Sexton being incredibly productive last season yeah I Sexton did have a game of or a season averaging 25 points he did yeah I mean that that's still that's still above Simon so that means they are a little bit different of players but they are they're definitely kind of six man types maybe but also also could potentially start and you're just not really sure Simon's does seem a little more maybe capable of being a point guard i think sexton neither of them is great defensively i think sexton is better there but yeah th- that's really interesting and again i implore you if you are interested to hear more of my thoughts the blazers to listen to that lockdown blazers with mike we talked a lot about potential cj trades as well and who might be interested in him which i i don't think is, is something that you and i have had a chance to do yet so uh, had a really good time talking about that stuff with mike who is next here now next up would be the clippers but we already discussed them so the team in with the eighth best record in the western conference is the los angeles lakers the lakers are 21 and 22 on the season a disappointing to my eyes five and seven since the last 1560 negative 2.1 net rating is 23rd and they're right around that on both offense and defense 23rd on offense 22nd on defense 538's raptor model has hated the lakers all season it still does 37 wins would be ninth in the western conference and gives them each of the models raptor andy Lowe gives them roughly a 30 percent chance of making it into the final eight also yeah, on, on on the lakers front dave McMenamin had it that anthony davis is ramped up his individual on court work we've seen some of that with him wearing a brace with that after that sprained mcl and he could return by the end of january which is that that's firmly within the four to eight week timeline i think that would be roughly six weeks from it he's going to be yeah, i want to say i want to say they said they never really gave a timeline on it initially they just said reevaluated. <laughs> yeah the four to eight so. weeks might be something that wasn't public at the time that he was injured well and this was this uh, again we said it at the time but to refresh this is a grade two mcl sprain it looks like almost certainly pretty similar actually to what kd has now as well and so uh, those are usually more of a six to eight week timeline and you know with if he's just doing individual on-court work right now it was obviously ridiculous that he would be back in four weeks that's just not something that happens from grade two mcl unless you're just unless it's like football or you're just really pushing to get back in the playoffs something something along those lines but even if he could return in six weeks that would be very encouraging yeah and and, and that would he's going to be reevaluated early this week yeah that would be encouraging it'd also be a little bit before the trade deadline we'll see how the lakers do there we we are going to get into our division by division team by team deadline preview soon enough the lakers section will be very interesting but on the injury front with them looks like kendrick nunn is healed but then he got a non-covid illness so he still has not made his lakers debut we're over we're over halfway into the season now and carmelo anthony who played in every game at the beginning of the season he has now missed two straight with a back issue yeah so i watched the complete destruction oh boy of the lakers by the denver nuggets whom we will fold in here as well the lakers have been starting lebron at center they started with dwight howard here to match up against Jokic, and i thought early on the lakers offense looked pretty good i've been talking about how Jokic is better defensively this year the numbers certainly bear that out in terms of on off court although some of that is shooting luck but i thought the lakers did really attack Jokic in terms of his rim protection early dwight howard i think had 10 points in the first in the first half and 
eight quick ones early and then lebron was getting right to the cup and finishing westbrook had a couple of finishes i mean he always flubs some of them but it wasn't Jokic making him do that and then when it really got interesting i thought was at the end of the second quarter we'll go a little more chronologically here when the lakers did go to lebron at center but i would actually say that lebron james is one of the best situated players in the nba to defend Nikola Jokic if he's really locked in at you know, 260 pounds and pretty quick feet and you know he's not going to get knocked backwards by Jokic if he's really engaged he's quick enough to contest him body him but of course they put Trevor Ariza on Jokic and because of that strategic decision yes you don't want to tire out LeBron James blah 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 he doesn't want to do it it's been the issues since time immemorial but because they put Ariza on Jokic they had to instantly double team they instantly gave up two dunks to Jeff Green cutting down the lane the double teams were terrible they were easily telegraphed Jokic ended the game with 13 assists 7 of 12 from the field didn't really have to take any jumpers at all uh he was only had to go 28 minutes in this one as they really put the pedal to the metal in the second half but they had 70 points in the first half the Lakers scored okay in the first half and then were had two below 20 point quarters in the second half but just the, the defense was so bad Russell Westbrook was involved in screwing up a number of backside rotations they started Westbrook Avery Bradley and Malik Monk you mentioned that Carmelo was out and then James and Howard I don't know why they wouldn't have just started Ariza at that point or Stanley Johnson why I don't know what they were thinking going to a three guard lineup like what is why would you have Avery Bradley out there I they were the initial plan was that they're gonna switch pick and rolls with Bradley and Howard and then Bradley was on Jokic Howard was on the perimeter he got burned a couple of times there but that didn't that didn't totally kill them but obviously whenever they got the ball to Jokic there they had to instant double team as well the guard screening action for Jokic they did a terrible job of dealing with that from a communication standpoint Westbrook was involved in some of those Malik Monk was also just another he's a bad inattentive off-ball defender the very first play of the game they get it a run across screen for Jokic Morris Monk's man sets the cross screen Jokic gets it on the block and then Morris just kind of pretends like he's trotting away to the weak side and then double back right under the basket for an easy layup Monk just totally lost him so the and then the other thing about the Lakers defense was Russell Westbrook driving slamming the ball off the backboard for missed layups even when he was getting pretty good separation like he knocked Aaron Gordon back a couple of times on nice plays but then would just blow the layup he had no touch and then instantly of course the Nuggets would come back the Lakers had no size and so for a lot of this and Jokic Will Barton Jeff Green these guys would just roll in for layups or they would get a ton of threes and they're 23 out of 40 the Nuggets were in the end from downtown well, you, to me this was the wildest stat of the the two wildest stats of this game connected Denver had a 122 half court offensive rating it's one of the best ones you'll ever see they had a 192 transition offensive rating in this game yeah and uh 143 overall as it was a 133 to 96 destruction I mentioned that the Lakers started off early they scored their first 16 points in the paint they were doing well LeBron really fell off I thought uh, Devon Reed was outstanding defending LeBron he can't quite deal with them that well in the post but he when LeBron tried to face up and take him one-on-one Reed actually stripped him three times and once uh, or twice on the same possession forcing a shot clock violation and the first one he knocks it away LeBron goes and gets it at half court starts to size him up like oh yeah you fucked up now and knocking the ball away from me I'm gonna attack you again and then he tried to attack him slipped down and then had to just throw it to the wing and it was a shot clock violation and Reed hit three out of four threes himself and then Bones Highland 
had a huge breakout game leading all scores with 27 points six of 10 from three he hit a couple of really six step backs one of them i think was on lebron and i thought the the lakers then tried to go back at highland like russell westbrook had a couple of those plays where he tries to post up and semi-transition against highland who basically anyone in the league can go right through but they brought help over and so russ just tried a couple of dirk fades on him that weren't even close russ was uh, put up a, a few garbage points in the second half but it, he was absolutely terrible on both ends throughout and only had three assists he did have zero turnovers though um one thing as we transition in the lakers one thing that's been interesting about westbrook is he was asked recently oh as a point guard how are you cutting down on the turnover and he kind of snickered at that because basically what they've done is they're putting the ball in lebron's hand more now neither of them had many assists in this game but westbrook is really kind of playing more of the role now that he played in houston where he's off the ball attacking more from the wings not up top as much not running hardly any pick and roll and just trying to attack against smaller players which he actually he got some decent separation but just again couldn't finish and yeah it was just totally ugly for the lakers i've got a few more notes here well Um, let's before i forget let's do the nuggets fundamentals sure um 22 and 20 on the season seven and six in their last 13 positive net rating still plus 0.6 is 16th in the league, 17th on offense, 14th on defense, which is toned down a little bit in the last while. Raptor model, 47 wins, which would be 6th in the West, and, you know, 88% chance playoffs ELO, 96% Raptor. One other thing I wanted to note, which is more on their game on Sunday, I just thought this was hilarious. Um, I didn't watch it super closely. The Jazz, So the Jazz beat the Nuggets by 23. Jokic was plus 5. In 37 <laughs> minutes, 25, 15, and 14. I mean, Gobert played, Gobert played great. And um, I'll talk about some of his stuff maybe in the jazz section. But that, like, I mean, there's a reason why Jokic is like the on-off metrics are just loving it. I mean, he's been great when he's been on the floor and they've been an absolute tire fire when he's been off. Yeah, I went on Waz's pod today for the Ringer NBA show and he asked me who my MVP pick was. And with the caveat that I haven't looked at it extensively and since we last did awards two weeks ago, I couldn't decide between Jokic and Giannis. I think stuff has fallen off, but yeah, Jokic pretty good um yeah so i think we're good here on the nuggets uh, for now why don't we turn to whichever team is next next up it actually tied with the lakers terms record but a superior net rating the minnesota timberwolves the timberwolves are 21 and 22 six and seven in their last 13 but a positive net rating, that's why they're, we're talking about them after the Lakers, plus 1.7 is 13th. They're a surprisingly low 18th in offense. We've talked about that before. And a surprisingly strong 19th in defense. And partially because of all the other teams falling off around them, Raptor model projects the Wolves to finish with 42 wins and the seven seed in the Western Conference. And both 538 models give them between a 70 and 80% chance of making the playoffs. Yeah, and Carl Anthony Towns has had some pretty dominant games recently we talked about what he did to christian wood he had five and ones tonight in this game against golden state 26 points only had to play 30 minutes as they blew out the warriors in the fourth quarter the warriors without steph curry with the hand issue and draymond green clay thompson did play however for golden state didn't watch too much of that one and so towns has been playing better recently so i do feel a little bit bad about the subject of my research this time because i used to be a 
huge fan of Carl Anthony Towns post game. I thought that as much as his shooting is what made him special. That's not the case anymore. Now it's really a shooting that makes him special, but that he could get into the post and really attack guys. And he still does. He still can beast a little bit. He's been better recently, as I mentioned. But overall, his numbers on the season in terms of posting up are really bad. He's 25th percentile, 0.08 points per possession on synergy. I'm going to actually cite both the synergy numbers. That's out of the post-ups that either where he actually posts up and it's shot free throw turnover or passes to someone directly uh, that leads to a shot. And I'm also going to reference the tracking data post-up. The the NBA's version of it, right? Right, where that actually just measures just based on the tracking data every time he receives the ball in the post, even if nothing happens with it. So I mentioned that he's 25th percentile in post-ups. And the big reason is that he's throwing the ball all over the gym. On those plays, 29% of his possessions are turnovers. That's astonishingly high. Yeah, that's really high. And he's a a good passer, but as we'll get into, there are some issues with with this. Um, So this is now to the NBA's tracking data. He receives the ball in the post 6.2 times per game. That's actually fifth most post touches in the NBA. Joel, I think, is is the highest with like 11. Nobody else has doubled. So on those 6.2 post-ups, he averages 2.6 points, two field goal attempts. He shoots about 50%, which is fine. Uh, Not amazing, though, because remember, again, you're turning it over on post-ups are kind of a high turnover thing. And, and particularly even entering the ball into the post, you can turn the ball over. So that's a, when you say, oh, he shoots 50% out of the post, that doesn't mean that his post-ups are a 50% proposition. That's just when he actually gets the shot up. Uh, not really getting fouled that much. He's uh, averaging two field goal attempts per game out of the post, 0.6 free throw attempts per game out of the post, but 0.8 turnovers per game out of the post. So he's turning it over well more than twice as often as he gets fouled. He's turning it over on 13% of his post touches. That's not even necessarily when he takes a shot. That is so 13% is that high? Oh, that's high because if you look at all the players who get three or more post touches per game, that 13% is 3% higher than any other player. The next highest is Yusuf Nurkic at 10 and OG Ananobi at nine. And then Pascal Siakam is all the way down at 7.8% in fourth. So this is a huge outlier that he turns it over on 13% of his post touches. So, and that 0.8 turnovers per game out of the post, that's the most in the NBA by a mile, including Embiid who gets close to double the amount of post touches that he gets. So that is a crazy number that that it's that high so why is he turning over so much as we watch the film he has a habit of just holding the ball away from him with one hand and that can look pretty good when he throws these passes but he's not kind of waiting and then throwing the pass he's just holding it out there with one hand palming it and then trying to throw a a pass when the double team comes and particularly his biggest problem was when they would hard double team him immediately on the catch that's where a bunch of his turnovers happened 24 percent of the time that he was hard double teamed in the post he turned it over and the wolves are only 0.78 points per possession in those situations you think hey a hard double team that's you're not even waiting until he backs down that you should be able to see that coming should be able to find shooters and yeah the wolves have struggled to knock down shots of course but he's just really weak with the ball in those situations he doesn't step through hard he doesn't have two hands on the ball he's not strong with it he's kind of fading away he'll have one hand on it trying to hold it away from the defense and he'll get stripped a lot he'll get his passes deflected a lot or he'll throw passes that are off target and 
and turn into turmeric. So I think that's the biggest problem is being able to deal with the hard double teams. Uh, And then, you know, he gets it mostly on the left block like a lot of big guys do. His still, his main move is back down for the right-handed jump hook, which he's still pretty effective at, particularly if he can get into range. Another reason, though, I think he struggles a little bit with the turnovers is he's not very good once he has his back to goal spinning baseline for the counter out of that right block and even out of that left block. And even when he's on the right block, he still wants to go left shoulder most of the time to the hook shot. He doesn't really have a turnaround jumper going baseline. He's got a, the only way he can really turn baseline is if he works his way all the way into the lane and then is able to get the angle to drop step and be right at the basket. So he doesn't really have like that quick spin move that along the baseline, like Shingun or Sean Kemp used to have. That, that's not really in the arsenal. And so because he's always trying to back down through his left shoulder, guys can really sit on that and then when he passes it they're right in his line of vision because they're not worried about him spinning away so if he's trying to look to the weak side the guy's standing right there and stopping him from doing that um also when he gets into the post he's just under the rim he does limited two-foot explosion so he's not a great finisher that we've talked about his somewhat poor numbers for a center finishing inside he's in the low 60s there which is not great for a center but my other so developing more of a baseline counter would be one just being stronger with the ball not just holding it with one hand all the time would be another piece of advice and then the other thing i would say is even when he's going against smaller players to turn and face because his numbers in isolation are really good some of those are actually just attacking off the dribble from up top which i love seeing him do but because many of these post-ups are coming off of pick and roll switches and even some of them are happening late in the clock so as a big man you're thinking okay i don't want to turn and face against this guy my advantage is backing him down and using my size but i think that if he turns and faces then he has the threat of that great jump shot yes which he when he's back to goal he doesn't have that he's not he doesn't really have a turnaround jump shot and because he kind of shoots this set shot he's not really comfortable with that so if he can face up with that he just received the ball there and just like Joel Embiid does just shoot that while facing up over a smaller defender then that guy has to really crowd him and yes that guy is smaller and quicker but a lot of times if you're big and a guy crowds you you can use your long strides to get past him or use the threat of the shot fake and then he can also see more of the floor you can see double teams coming and you're not off balance trying to back down so those would be my pieces of advice for him to be better obviously i think he's going to be an all-star this year i picked him up for my team with john he still is a wonderful shooter but i just would like to see fewer turnovers out of the post than this he really with his skill level should be a better weapon yeah whole, i think that's a, a, a lot of yeah. good Did, insight you, you enjoy enjoy talking about the wolves there that was quite the soliloquy but hey. I, I got into the weeds on this one so it, you did and i mean it. i had hoped to be more interested in wolves warriors but then some guys sat um the next up in record would be the denver nuggets but we've already discussed them so we will go to the dallas mavericks a team that we will spend a lot of time with on the live show for the nba cast we're going to have mavericks oklahoma city thunder that should be a lot of fun it's an 8 30 eastern 5 30 pacific start for those of you who want to join us on martin luther king day the mavericks are 24 and 19 10 and 4 in their last 14 games all the way up to 3.4 plus 3.4 net rating which is eighth they went from 20th in net rating the last time we did a 1560 to eighth with this hot streak which we'll talk about of course 15th in offense fifth in defense and yeah that's going to of course come up the Mavs 
our Raptor model projects that they win 48, which will be fifth in the West, and it looks like they're going to make the playoffs. A, a, a quick roster note, um, Shams had this a couple days ago, that we knew that they were interested in retaining Marquise Chris, but the Mavericks are going to waive Willie Cauley-Stein to make it happen, and Chris is going to sign a two-year deal. I'm surprised at the timing of this. It seemed like they were going to do something with Chris like the Lakers are doing with Stanley Johnson, where you just kind of linger it out a little bit, see see what can come up. And a big part of that for Dallas's perspective is Willie Cauley-Stein is making $4.1 million this year, so that could potentially be useful in trade. Maybe Dallas knows they're not going to do anything else. Or, you know, maybe I, I was wondering whether Chris had leverage or whether getting a second year, which I'm going to guess is non-guaranteed, was enough of an enticement to be like, OK, well, we, we know we'd rather have you. And that gives us more than than waiting could potentially provide. Yeah. And let's not forget, too, that Chris has been through a lot of this with the Warriors being on a two day shuttling back and forth. He's not eligible for a two way now. He has too many years of experience. But I think he wanted the security. He's played well. I think some other teams may have been interested in him. You don't want to let these guys go too long with the the potential for COVID hardships exemptions create exceptions creating roster spots uh, around the league. And so I think they just felt like they needed to do this uh, to and that the nebulous chance of using Collie Stein's salary in a trade where he's I mean who knows what's going on with him right he's just yeah. had this personal absence well, for and, like a month and a half and also the Mavs have a huge Josh Richardson trade exception so if they if they wanted to, to you know take in a significant salary the more likely way that they would do it unless they're packaging Powell and Collie Stein would be just to use the TE they have plenty of space under the tax anyway yeah didn't the Mavs exercised Collie Stein's option right yes that was a team option that they picked up yeah that was uh basically flushing about three and a half million of Mark Cuban's money down the toilet as it turned out I didn't really understand because he didn't play really much for them last year maybe they thought that under kid it might be different or something but uh, in any event I want to figure out whether this recent defense is real a lot of great stats out there they've in their last 10 games they're eight and two they've only allowed more than 100 points twice I mean that's that's some old school shit to be holding teams below 100 points they do play a pretty slow pace though it's part of that overall they're in those 10 games 99.7 defensive rating while they are 14th on offense they are number one on defense during that period recall also that Luca and particularly Porzingis missed large swaths of time Porzingis is back now so also worth noting who did they play during this period yes Sacramento twice OKC Houston Orlando so that's 50% of their schedule against terrible teams Denver we did that game for the NBA cast Denver was super injured even by their standards they had 27 turnovers in that game which was insane the Bulls that they had a rough game that time Golden State was five out of 28 on threes in the game that they played they held them to 82 points and they had everyone I think except Draymond in that game the Knicks and then Memphis who they completely throttled over the weekend in very impressive fashion so they are number one in defense at that time and and there are some things to like here for sure that's not just shooting like that's always the number one thing that we look at number one in opponent free throw rate they are not fouling they are number two in defensive rebounding Luca helps there remember all pretty much all this is without Porzingis right. although when Porzingis came back they didn't miss a beat in that Memphis game uh, and they're number seven in forcing turnovers part of that was that ridiculous Denver game that that we did but they forced some turnovers in that that was pretty good and then also worth noting though in terms of those turnovers they're seventh in percentage of turnovers for us over the last 10 games but they are 19th in steals per game during that period and again they play a little smaller pace i couldn't i wasn't able to actually find steal rates over that so you'll 
yeah. have to just deal with steals per game but i do find that steals and just overall turnovers against are somewhat decoupled over the course of a season and that generally i would guess I've never actually proven this, but anecdotally, I've seen this, that steal rate is probably more predictive of future turnover rate forced than turnover rate itself, because just a lot of these regular turnovers are kind of unforced. Some of them aren't, but uh, usually when the ball goes out of bounds, that's more, or there's a travel or a double dribble or something like that, uh, or an offensive three seconds, that that sort of thing is not necessarily, many of those turnovers are not necessarily forced turnovers. And then, of course, but there are still some pretty good fundamentals there. Yeah, But they've also been benefiting from great opponent shooting so far. What are the details on that? Yeah, I mean, 31% for opponents on threes, that is lower than you would expect. And 36% on mid-rangers is lower than you would expect in a normal sample. Yeah, so basically opponents can't hit a jump shot against them. Also worth noting that they are 14th in opponent location effective field goal percentage. So it's not like they're holding teams to really difficult shooting locations. And then I was like, oh, well, maybe they're just doing a great job of protecting the rim, which is really the one place where the defense has the most control over opponent shooting percentages. Now, 66.5% at the rim for opponents, which is in towards the bottom half of the league. Well, and that's not a surprise with no Porzingis. They don't really have anyone who protects the rim that well. Kleba is okay, but they're not amazing. Well, Nate, it's interesting that 14th in location effective field goal percentage, that's actually worse than their full season number. They're, they're seventh in opponent location effective yeah. field goal percentage on the season. But but I think with all that said, Jason Kidd, I think, has improved their defensive execution and just how hard they play. Uh, I mean, whether he's he's improved it, Sean Sweeney or who was their, their coach while Kidd was in protocols for a while. But I, I think they're playing better defense this year. And now the offense is worse. Some have blamed Kidd and they're taking too many mid-rangers, etc. I don't know that Jason Kidd is the one making Luka Doncic suit terribly on three-pointers. And Luka, since he's been back, only 22 points a game, 9.3 assists and 19 percent from three on 6.7 attempts per game and if luke is not hitting that step back he's just not the same type of player he at least this season as you look at his numbers or i'm sorry in this stretch at least has rediscovered his floater game which had been off uh he's now over 50 percent on 46 floaters since he returned and he still shoots well at the rim doesn't get there as often but then yeah just any kind of a jump shot 5 of 21 on mid-rangers and then that 19 percent from three as well so he's just gonna have to play better we hope that coming back from the ankle that that might happen it hasn't really quite gotten there yet but uh, hopefully that can change and he can get back to the level he's been at for sure number four in the western conference the memphis grizzlies surging yeah, I, Memphis. i'll take Grizzlies. them actually since they're since you you did the work on them 30 and 15 11 and 3 since the last 15 and 60 had a really nice win against the warriors on tuesday but then really flamed out offensively as we talked about against the mavs seventh in net rating plus 3.8 eighth on offense 11th on defense but remember when they were impressive. 30th yes i do recall that in fact and there's a lot of bad shooting luck there but they are forcing a ton of turnovers that's a, a big part of why they, they've been so good defensively and then also that really helps their offense as well 52 wins is their projection fourth in the conference raptor likes them at 99 percent to make the playoffs so does elo yeah what do you got for these guys well so the place i want to start is not is something independent of the main main point which is part of the reason why memphis was struggling so much defensively you brought up the terrible shooting luck they still are giving up the third highest opponent three-point shooting percentage in the league so there could still be some significant regression in the mean here 36.8 percent on the season it's only you know so the so the league 
median right now is around 35%. So if they can get another couple percent back from three, that would be huge. But what I was inspired to look into was Steven Adams missed an extended period of time in the protocols. That led to Jaron Jackson Jr. playing more at center. And so I wanted to look at not just the numbers during this stretch, but the overall numbers with Jaron at the five this season. And the good news is that they are very positive overall. So about 1,200 possessions on the season. And the Grizzlies have a plus 6.2 net rating. And that's being driven by a strong 106.2 defensive rating. And so you're like, okay, that's that's all really good because the question that we wondered about with the Grizzlies defensively with Jackson at center was, can they defend well enough? Because he having a four spacer, lower usage guy at the five that opens up opportunities for Jackson and for the rest of the Grizzlies if you can draw the guy out or you can get those open shots. So that's, that's the good news. And I would say there's more good news, but one concern for me is that you then you go into, okay, well, what are they doing well? What are what's and and is that sustainable and what the grizzlies are doing well defensively in the jackson five lineups they're forcing turnovers as you mentioned they're doing that really well about 16 percent of opponent possessions in those minutes and they also the opponent effective field goal percentage is very low but the quote-unquote big man things trying to limit the amount of free throw attempts that the team has and trying to grab defensive rebounds the grizzlies are terrible at both of those things in the jackson the five minutes so then the reason they the biggest thing that they've been successful on that might not be repeated is opponent shooting. And a part of that, yes, is opponents are making fewer threes than you'd expect, 32%. I brought up how the Grizzlies have had terrible shooting luck overall. They've had positive luck in these minutes. And opponents are below, they're below the mean in terms of long twos, 37%. But the good news on that front is that, sure, those two things you could expect to take a tone back. Opponents are only shooting 57% at the rim when Jaron Jackson plays center. And that they're taking a lot of their attempts there. I think of, typically for me, attempts at the rim proportion is a mix of the big man because are they intimidating out? That's, you know, like Rudy Gobert's great example of that. But a lot of that is also just the surrounding talent. How many drives are you giving up? Yeah, it's also worth noting as well, Zach Lowe and Chris Harrington pointed this out, that a lot of those Jaron at center minutes are, if you're counting Jaron as the center, are also played with Jaron, uh, sorry, with Brandon Clark. Sure. So that's, so you're still, with Clark, his rim running is useful, but you're not really getting a true five out right. experience on the offensive end there. Yeah, that's, I think this has been encouraging enough that you can say, hey, at least we can close games with Jaron at center and him starting at center, I think has looked good yeah. with Adams out as you alluded to. Yeah, I think that's, it, it's a it's a positive takeaway. Now, would I like to have a capable center option on the roster? Pro- I, I, I think that's a worthy consideration. They also do have Steven, they already have Steven Adams under contract for 17.9 million for next year. Maybe you could theoretically, I mean, the Grizzlies are kind of the cap space sleeping giant this offseason where it's like, not only could they, you know, I mean, could they have roughly 20 million without without anything? But if they could move some money, if they could clear off, Adams is probably the easiest way to do it. Then they could start to cook with some gas. I don't know who they would want to go after, but they could be a potentially interesting target for a couple of different things because they're already obviously a very good team. So we'll have to see where that goes with the Grizzlies. But we can move on to the team that is currently the three seed only they're technically actually tied in the because they have well, the jazz have one fewer win and one fewer loss but they have a better winning percentage the jazz after their win over the denver nuggets on sunday they are up to 29 and 14 on the year nine and five since the last 15 and 60 even with the rudy gobertless lull they're still number one in net rating plus 8.8 they were at like plus 13 before that um number one in offense they went from fifth to 12th in defense 
since the last West 15 and 60, which is incredible. Um, Raptor model projects them to tie with the Warriors for the second best record in the West. And obviously they're going to make the playoffs. So inspired by the absence of Rudy Gobert, I wanted to look at sort of similar to something I, I did, but then we didn't talk about in the East 15 and 60 last week. I looked at Utah's defense when Gobert is on the floor and when, when he's off and kind of like piecing those two things together. And, and you found that opponents were also very inspired by the absence of Rudy Gobert? Oh, most definitely. And so when Gobert is on the floor, 104.7 defensive rating, that's very good. 2,400 possessions so far with, with Rudy on the floor filtering out garbage time. As is often the case, the Jazz are elite at not fouling in his minutes, and they give up extremely few shots at the rim, 25% of opponent attempts. That's really, really low. Um, Not as great this year in opponent rim field goal percentage, 62%. It's a little bit better than some of the others, and they haven't been great as defensive rebounding, but they've been playing smaller lineups and everything else. So the the Gobert on picture is still base. It's in the same ballpark as before. We've talked about this a little bit in the defensive player of the year conversations and all that. He's still in the mix, even if he's not wasn't number one on either of our ballots. Instead, the story is when Gobert is off the floor and that defensive rating spikes from a 104.7 to a 116.2. They're bottom half of the league in both foul rate and opponent effective field goal percentage in those minutes. And it's not that opponents in the Gobertless lineups are making threes. They're middle of the pack from long two. They're middle of the pack from three. Instead, they're giving up 68% shooting at the rim and 45% on floaters, giving up way more shots at the rim. And one of my first thoughts was, well, okay, how is it How is it when Hassan Whiteside's in there? Because we've, we've it's come up a couple times, including in that game against the Warriors, that they've been off with small ball when neither Gobert nor Whiteside on the floor. It's not great when Whiteside's out there either. About a 114 defensive rating, so better, but not great. But then that goes all the way when you take Gobert and Whiteside off the floor. Utah's defensive rating is a 122.6 in 425 possessions. Yeah. And the worst thing with those groups too, I think we've hit on this a little bit, is they're worse offensively. Right. As well, because they can't really run pick and roll the way they'd like to. Now, you might say, well, hey, if Donovan Mitchell, Donovan Mitchell is really the one guy on this team who I think would really be able to take advantage of extra space attacking the rim if you're playing five out. Yeah, like, because that's not what Conley does. Yeah, but everyone, and Conley, he'll, he's actually a very good, good off the dribble three-point shooter and he can kind of break an ankle and get open from there but he's not going to get all the way to the rim and finish at this point in his career he's pretty good attacking the rim earlier on in his career but at this point so i think it hurts them offensively because someone like joe ingles for example if he's not getting a screen he's pretty much useless uh as with the ball because he's just not gonna be able to create any kind of separation i guess clarkson maybe is someone else who, who might be able he does more of an iso stuff so he might be able to take advantage of having a little bit more space there he's not really a pick and roll creator but nonetheless i think there are and then you're just not getting those you know rudy doesn't have a huge usage rate but he's good on the offensive glass that you get zero offensive rebounds without him or Whiteside. and so again i, I always felt that people were like oh yeah rudy gay they can play him at center now i mean number one rudy gay isn't the guy to execute that 
strategy with if you've watched Rudy Gay at basically any point in his career, particularly the last few years, and once he's lost athleticism. But then you don't the other guys either. Really, on either end, it just doesn't fit into what the Jazz personnel does well. So it was just it was kind of doomed to begin with. Maybe they're going to try and maybe see if Eric Pascal can play some center for them in these groups, and maybe they they feel that Whiteside is just so much of a defensive liability in the playoffs that they need to try to find another way to play. But I just I, I mean, go ahead try it. I just don't necessarily see it succeeding particularly well. I mean, Rudy Gobert is a pretty hard guy to replace, particularly when you have such limited defensive players around him. We can also talk about Donovan Mitchell, who still has the highest true shooting percentage of his career, which is impressive. That's a little bit above last season, but remember we're in a lower offense environment. By the way, I looked it up after you mentioned it, I don't know, what was that, an hour and a half ago, <laughs> about whether the free throw rate was normalizing a little bit, and it is. It's 18% now this year, and it was 19% last year. Earlier this season, it was in the 16th, so it has more normalized kind of back to where it was. One of the bigger reasons that offense is still down this year is, is that the three-point shooting isn't nearly as high as it was the last couple of years, but right. those, I think those are more, the last couple of years are just kind of outliers on that score, particularly last year with the no fans in the building, a lot of people point to that. Uh, so, but yeah, Mitchell still, despite that, and despite hitting fewer threes, has the highest true shooting percentage of his career. He's also not getting the foul line quite as much, but 54% of his twos, and he's hitting really well around the basket, and he's hitting 49% on floaters, 45% on long twos. That's something that he really has not been great at so far in his career. Maybe that will regress, but that's also encouraging in terms of his ability to create an isolation at the end of games. Oh, for sure. All right, let's get to the Phoenix Suns now, Danny. Suns just... Well, no, let's get trundling. to the... Let's do the Warriors, because the Warriors have the next... Oh, oh, yeah. Suns are now, yeah. now number one. In the, yeah. yeah. We'll, okay. we'll do the Warriors, but this win will probably be on the quicker side. Do you want to do their fundamentals? Yeah, 31 and 12, but only 7 and 6 since the last 15 and 60. Draymond Green has had a number of injury issues where he hasn't played. We'll get to that in a second. Third in net rating, plus 7.7. They are actually much better in overall net rating than they are in garbage time adjusted net rating. So they're only third in garbage time adjusted net rating for the last. All the way down to 13th on offense. And even their defense, which was a massive outlier early, still number one, but is dropping off a little bit, as you'd expect without Draymond. On. they project for 55 wins that would tie for second in the conference and they will be making the playoffs it has been a precipitous fall from fourth to 13th in offensive ratings since uh, our last full 15 and 60 check-in and now the news that Draymond green remember he had that calf issue on the night that clay thompson returned and now he's going to miss another two weeks because he saw a specialist and apparently the issue with his calf is related to a disc in his lower back which i assume would mean some sort of pain or numbness sciatica sort of thing and that that's not a great sign that's something no. that could really linger throughout the course of the season and i wouldn't be shocked to see him not return until after the all-star break and that's fine they can weather that they've got some depth there but obviously they need draymond green working at full speed and, and you know draymond doesn't want to miss this time because he desperately wants to win defense player of the year and if he misses a month here which is kind of where it's on track for me he's already been a week he's going to miss two more weeks and then he's going to be reevaluated. that may put him out of the running for defense player of the year it might and as came up a little bit in the wolf section curry missed sunday's game due to a right hand issue and gary payton the second is dealing with a back issue yeah the warriors have fallen from fourth to 13th in offensive rating since the last time we did a west 15 and 60 they're 29th in turnover rate for the season that's not great and 
we yeah that, i mean that's the biggest thing right and that's why they lost that memphis game which we talked about as well just when because they're still top of the league in e field goal percentage and they're fine in offensive rebounding it's just they turn the ball over like crazy and, and even even when they were when they were at their best before and, and this is even with curry really struggling as well but uh, as we were going to talk about he still is uh massively important to what they're doing even when he is struggling but those numbers in terms of turnover percentage were like in the teens low 20s this is 20 night this is bad it's yeah it, it's a big problem i we talk enough about the warriors so this will be a shorter section but i want to do a little bit about the warriors without stephen curry on the floor um this is before the minnesota game because the stats hadn't loaded in time negative 5.3 net rating and the offensive rating is below a 104 that's bad in about 1200 possessions and of the dean oliver's four factors the only one where they're above the 29th percentile is free throw attempt rate where they're actually around 60th and they're not great in shooting in oh oh, 60th percentile yes 60th percentile uh they're not shooting great in these you know below about 32 percent on threes 36 percent on long twos but they often have limited shooting the warrior especially before clay thompson return you you take steph curry off the floor there aren't a ton of other shooters on the warriors and it also reminded me i brought this up you know especially when i used to write more about about the warriors for the athletic that by myers has never really invested in a capable backup point guard for the warriors some of that is opportunity and and you know like they didn't even use their mid-level this year i don't know if they could have wooed somebody like hull netto for the minimum maybe that would have yeah, helped but, but jo- then jordan pool is better than yeah. those guys anyway yeah i think you just want to have another hand in it um but then that got me into an interesting thing which is i wanted to look at because i was you know andrew wiggins and we've heard about the the potential for all i mean he might even get you know might get the fan vote for for all-star but that's only one part of the grading i wanted to look at his splits and Wiggins with Curry on, 62% true shooting on 22 usage. Curry off, that 62% drops to 52% true shooting, and the usage rate obviously goes higher. He's taking harder shots. They're not going in as much. And something that I found really interesting, and again, we're you know when you start splitting the pie smaller, you get into some sample size stuff. Wiggins is 45% on threes when Curry is on the floor and 35% when Curry's off. I think some of that is self-created versus not and just getting better looks and a big drop-off on twos as well but something that i thought was interesting is that wiggins without curry last year which was a different warriors team kind of a similar split and so that isn't to say andrew wiggins is trash or anything like that it's just a reminder that him slotting in as the you know second or third or fourth best offensive player makes andrew wiggins a much better offensive player now they should between jordan Poole, clay thompson once he's able to play more minutes he was has had his minutes limit up to 24 minutes per game now rather than 20 and clay He's, he's shooting a ton he said he said after the game he's going to keep shooting because that's what he's best at but coming into tonight he had 36 percent usage part of that was that crazy first game back but hopefully that's going to normalize a, a little bit but between clay jordan Poole, and wiggins you should be able to put together a decent non-curry lineup and clay at least gives them the ability to play a little bit more of the off-ball stuff that they like to play but i do think it's a valid criticism of kerr and maybe when james wiseman returns this could change a little bit but i think it's a valid criticism occur that it's not just the personnel which has been bad as you've alluded to a lot of times without Steph Curry but that it's also that the offensive system doesn't really work that well without Steph Curry and and the teams are ready for these sorts of actions and 
to just simplify things the high turnover rate as well that's not only with Steph Curry on the floor that they have the high turnover rate and that just putting Jordan Poole in a pick and roll a few times when Steph Curry is off the floor might just be better they have plenty of shooting right so and particularly when Wiseman comes back I think we're going to see more of that with him as the role man but it, it, I do think there's still remain issues also worth noting too that a lot of these are the Curry off the floor stuff is games that he doesn't play at all and then they're going up against starters and it's a lot more difficult so I think those numbers are skewed a little bit but I, I'd be interested to know what the numbers are with Curry off the floor in games that he plays but I, I don't nah, I'm guessing they're probably not better um should we get on to Phoenix here yeah let's 33 do it three and nine continue as I said trundling right along although DeAndre Ayton did leave today's game where they completely blew out the Pistons and Cade Cunningham got ejected on one of the stupid ejections I've ever seen for for pointing at uh, some people that he had in the stands after he had a reverse dunk and the referee thought he was pointing at a Phoenix player and threw him out that's just like an auto thought by the referee where he just didn't even stop to think of like okay wait a minute is there some explanation for this that I'm not considering like he and he pointed fully arm extended you don't point fully arm extended at someone Somebody's who's right, right next, next to you that you just dunked like no one's dumb enough to do that anymore like the the lister blister was now 30 years ago you know nobody points at guys after dunking on him any, a, anymore they know not to do that so the he already had attack in the game the fact that the referee i think it was kevin cutler thought that that's what he was doing and threw him out was preposterous uh so anyway sorry that has nothing to do with phoenix uh what does have to do with phoenix is their net rating second in the nba 8.3 fourth on offense second on defense projecting for 59 wins that's four above at least uh, per 538 the warriors and jazz they are now four ahead of the warriors in the loss column and seems like they should get a chance to get some separation against golden state now they will be making the playoffs deandre ayton sprained his ankle in that pistons games didn't return cam johnson is still out he's missed three in a row with an ankle sprain abdel nader is still out with this right knee issue but hasn't had surgery yet I, it's really again such a shame for him because he looked like he'd finally established his career and then he just uh, these injuries have kept him from contributing um it, you mentioned things might be opening up for them to get the league's best record you want to elaborate on that yeah absolutely it was something i was thinking about um as I was kind of piecing together the day and Utah did end up beating Nuggets, but the Suns, it's, it, you could argue that it's not even just the West. It's also the league's best record. So the, the top West teams are all currently ahead of the top East teams, though. The the Bulls have the fewest losses in the East at 14. So they're tied with the Jazz, but have two fewer yeah, wins. That, and that's probably going to change given their yes, injury issues. Absolutely. And the, so, so the Suns are at 33 and nine, the Warriors are at 31 and 12, the Jazz are at 29 and 14. And the Jazz had that rough stretch without Gobert. The Warriors looks like they're going to be judicious with their main guys. We now know Draymond's going to miss at least the next two weeks. And, you know, Curry missed today's game. Uh, the Suns, part of it is, it's not like they've been extraordinarily healthy. They've already had Aiton and Booker miss reasonable periods of time. But it's also because the Suns, partially credit to James Jones, partially credit to Monty Williams, they have the personnel offensively to weather a single absence of a key offensive player, but they also have the defensive foundation to weather these kind of absences. So even if they get hit in a way that some of these other teams have, it's not going to sink them the way that it sank the Jazz and the way that it sinks the Warriors. So I think they're in an extremely good position to end the season with the league's best record. And another stat that just really impresses me about Phoenix is that their top five 
five players in three-point attempts per game. They're all over 35%, and three of those five guys are over 39%, Booker, Bridges, and Cam Johnson. In fact, the Suns only have two players that are taking more than two threes per game, which is not that many, that are under 35%. Chris Paul, 32, Cam Payne at 33%. And both those guys, like, I, I think you respect them enough. It's not like you're going to play them. I mean, they're not like at 28 or something like that. Yeah, smart teams are starting to realize it a little bit with CP that he just hasn't been as comfortable taking the three-pointer. Sure. And then but the only other the, the only other curiosity for me with Phoenix um, I, is that this has been a more challenging year for Cameron Payne. 49% true shooting on the season, and the Suns only have a 107 offensive rating when he's on the floor. And part of that is that Payne is only shooting 43% on twos, and the Suns have pretty good spacing overall. And not necessarily as good in some of the backup minutes, especially when, like, Sharch is missing the entire season, and then other guys have missed time. And my first thought was, oh, maybe part of that is because of these minutes they played with Cam Payne and Alfred Payton together. No, they've been, they've had a plus six net rating, only 220 possessions but that is the defense more than the offense uh, basically a 101 defensive rating with some massive shooting lock opponents are shooting only 26 percent on threes and 30 percent on long twos but that is an immaterial kind of concern because there is a zero percent chance that the suns will play elford payton and campaign together in the playoffs in minutes that matter very small uh, percent chance indeed and yeah it's a little disappointing that booker isn't having an unbelievably efficient season given that this we're finally seeing there's only had one other year in his career where he was shooting this well on three pointers and but his mid-range shooting has gone down a little bit i want to just look into his play type data a little bit more to see if i could come up with a, a reason why he's maybe a little bit less efficient one of those is just that he hasn't hit a, as well out of pick and roll so far this year uh he was 1.02 points per possession out of pick and roll last year this year that's down to 0.92 so about 0.1 worse jumpers off the dribble out of pick and roll last year he was awesome 54 percent effective field goal percentage 1.13 points per possession on jumpers off the dribble out of pick and roll this year not so good on that 47 percent effective field goal percentage so that's down seven percentage points on the plays that are really the biggest thing for him out of pick and roll also has not been as effective getting all the way to the rim and not doing it nearly as often this year as he was as he did last year and hasn't finished as well that's small sample size there and then the other thing that i noticed and i noticed this anecdotally just watching them and maybe this is just because teams have kind of figured this out but he's just not scoring quite as much on those off-ball cuts this year and it, remember we named a cut after him that devin booker cut when he's about to do a wide pin down the guy is gonna lock and trail him and said he just face cuts him right to the basket so he hasn't been getting as many of those he also hasn't operated out of the post hardly at all this year which i thought is always been an effective part of his game if he can get a smaller defender on him they just haven't gone to that as much and those neither of those were huge play types for him but they made up about nine percent or so of his offense and this year that's down to like three percent those two play types so those are a couple of the reasons that i could see of why maybe he has not been as efficient inside the arc this year as last year and that will do it for today's pod we love bringing this to you thanks so much for being a subscriber i encourage you also to subscribe to the podcast arguing about food with my sister we got a second one of those up as well that's actually in your feed if you want to listen to it and give it a shot here on dunked on on the public feed totally different but also something that's a little more wide-ranging so maybe if there's someone that you know that loves food or just enjoys 
arguing or listening to people argue in what we think at least uh, my sister and i think is kind of a funny way give that a shot anything that you want to talk about before we go here dang oh the nba cast we will do mavericks thunder on monday at 8 30 eastern 5 30 pacific that'll be fun sure i'll have a real gm radio this week we've had a migration issue changing podcast hosts there's been a little bit of a delay on stuff that should be resolved relatively soon and don't on prime subscribers i will do my discord chat this week the announcement on date and time will come as soon as i figure out the date and time all right and of course we're running a sale right now in honor of the mock trade deadline if you want to jump on for a year you can get total access for less than the monthly podcast only price and that gets you all of our salary sheets we even do stuff like salary sheets for the mock trade deadline and the mock off season and of course you get our chats you get access to the the discord which a a lot of people really enjoy so hope you'll take advantage of that and uh, get yourself a good deal get more uh, and lock in for a year uh, at a low price we'll talk to you all again soon till then at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet365 21 plus only must be present in virginia if you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help call 1-800-GAMBLER terms and conditions apply